Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And welcome back to the legend that is delicious word sandwich, my dear Kiotis, with your mad prophet, old Maddie. Boy, old Maddie, you sure have been gone a while. Why? Yes. Yes, I have. And as I promised at the outset of this show, I do not apologize. But I shall explain. You see, Kiotis, since that little misunderstanding with the radical remnants of King Twyla the Cruel's tribe, I have been not only on the lamb, but I am but a poor lamb, lost on a seemingly endless desert island. I'm surrounded by woodlands with eyes, and bears with M16s, without much of an internet connection, suffice to say. Indeed, how has this recording reached thee? Well, I'll tell ya. I record my reflections and makings of the delicious word sandwich, I put the yuzb into a tiny bottle, and I hope it bobs its way to some sort of mainland, where it is picked up and soars across the skies to reach my delicious word sandwich base, wherein my cat edits and submits the episode to the almighty producer. I just realized now I should try to put some sort of indication to where I am into this message. But don't know how to do that, and I refuse to beg for assistance. Blast. No matter, this whole show is a cry for help. Don't worry, Kiotis. Since our last meeting, I managed to give the King Solomon tribe of evil the slip, and found myself running down a dark and narrow cavernous path that seemed to run like a subway through the island. Wary of staying too long underground due to the last time I was in such a place, I wandered, hoping to find the exit, not sure of which direction I had entered. But then, there was a flashing light at the end of the tunnel. Surely the light of day breaking through the fluttering tropical trees. I know what you're thinking. T'was death. Alas, it was not. I've died before, you see. There's no light at the end of a long tunnel. It's more like a light within flares brighter and brighter, looking at the world through layers of shifting lace curtains until you find yourself in a white blankness. No sound, no bygone loves, no Dumbledore. Just a silent, great, white nothing. I have no doubt, had I not been resurrected, I would have lost track of who I was, where I ended and the nothing began, and become one with the void. Entropy at its finest. Maybe. It was very much like that scene in Spongebob when Squidward breaks time and space and is in that whack purgatory. Squidward died, y'all. You know, that's a bit heavy, old Maddie, you say. Well, I died, my kiltis. That leaves a mark. Back to my story. Well, it was not a light sifting through distant trees. It was nay the light of the sun, life, and salvation, but the flashing blaze of a firing rifle. Forsooth, I, forsooth. T'was my old enemy, the M16 toting bear, who upon our first climactic battle, I had crudely dubbed Winnie the Pooh. Notwithstanding the cease and desist I received from both the estate of A.A. Milne and the Empire of Disney, this could not have been his true name, for he was, in fact, a Lucy the Pooh. All the same, before the tribe turned on me, I asked about this bear, and it seems like this strange grizzly armory had a reputation and a name. My ultimate adversary, my nemesis. He was the crocodile to my hook. 
the six-fingered man to my Inigo Montoya, the Fernand Mondego to my Edmund Dantes. This villain's name? Jim Pawsby. So there I was, a deer in his sights, this upright shadow coming toward me as if a spooky ghost bear. I yelled out to the spectre, Jim Pawsby, you silly turnip! He stopped, and he gave me an inquisitive sniff and grimaced at the result, as if all he could smell was my cheap deodorant and bullshit. However, as you may recall, Kiotis, this bear had to relinquish its natural bear strides due to having my tiny hands instead of front paws, which were now my hands, and now rode upon a unicycle of vengeance. And thus, stopping to take my measure, he toppled sideways. Ha ha ha, Jim Pawsby, you are still a Lucy the Pooh. I dashed, I sidestepped, he clawed at me as I passed, merely tapping me with my own spindly little hand. The idiot. I had the bear claws now, and when I escape I shall use my bear claws to eat many delicious bear claws. You know, the pastry. Wordplay. Jim Pawsby remounted his unicycle, but not before the tribe had found me and ran at me like a pack of wolves. I had Pawsby riding and firing in pursuit from my six, and the tribe charging at me with spears from my twelve. And despite all these clocked numbers, it seemed I was out of time. Then, Jim Pawsby roared in tortured anguish, while I yipped with glee, for it seemed he had unwittingly become my saviour. In his mad firings at me, I knew to zigzag and dodge as I ran. The tribe did not. They fled the tunnel, having lost a score of their ranks before retreating, thinking me a bullet-spitting bat out of hell. Just as I reached the light and was in plain view of Pawsby's hatred, his gun once again jammed. Was it Providence? Nay. I'm just that good. By the time he unicycled to the cave mouth, or butt, you may choose the hole, he scrunched his scrawny fist and shook it at my dust, the only trace I left behind. Until next time, Jim Pawsby. Before I knew it, I was sitting on some desolate beach with a crisp copy of the New Yorker in my mighty bear paws. Enough old Maddie foolery. Let's tell a story. Well, let's tell a story with a lick of sense. I found myself a nice spot among some bones, a bone throne if you will, and I began reading the short story Dandelion by Law Siegel, published March 25th, 2019. Like a certain other story, it's a highly self-reflective tale that conveys feelings of wise regret, isolation, and appreciation of nature in a vague but enrapturing sense of divinity. The story is written like a confession, a 19-year-old reflecting on a time when they were 10 years old, but there's no real crime to confess, as it's more rueful lamentation of the hubris of youth, and how he takes so much for granted with our arrogant view of the world, distorted by desires, loyalties, and insecurities. The time in question was when our protagonist, named Lucinda, was journeying in the Alps with their father, one of her last experiences in Austria before she, quote, had to leave. What she's reflecting on, however, rather than her own memory, was a story that she had written in her 20s about this time as a 10-year-old. So, Kiotis, what you're listening to is me reviewing a fictional character, reviewing their 20-year-old self's short story, reviewing their 10-year-old self's experience. That's a lot of reviewing. In a way, you're getting three reviews all in one, so remember that whenever my episodes come out late. This format was interesting. Because she can do things like describe the scene from her youth in both the way she had written it in her 20s and how she remembers it in her 90s, seamlessly jumping between these lenses to both celebrate and criticise her youth. She begins doing this by repeating phrases like light tinkled among the trees and the grasses gleamed sword-like, says my story. Then she criticises how our language seems to demand similes, everything to be comparative in order to be properly conveyed then displays several excerpts from her own writing and critiques it. On one hand, 
This was a very good way to quickly establish the difference between the 20 year old version's prose and that of our narrator. However, looking at it from a meta point of view, all I could think was that these over elaborate or just off similes that she was mocking were totally similes that she had come up with and, though overwritten, she knew were good and slipped them under the radar. Like, she knew they were good, but not good enough to be published, and she was just not willing to throw them away. And I love that she kind of just smuggled them into a story, making fun of them, but at the same time, they were published in The New Yorker. I know for one thing that I have come up with some real stinkers of similes, but goddamn if I don't love them all and think they're all some sort of genius. I am, of course, some sort of genius. Anyway, a simple way to express the dichotomy of the two narrators is the 20-year-old virgin... Between the mountain and myself, the land cupped downward, containing light like a mist. While the 90-year-old version, I remember it as a white, chilly presence. A dog barked and barked and barked, and the purity of the air carried the sound to where I stood waiting. The former is imbued with the overindulgence of vague poetic prose that youth do when they discover how fun writing can be, and trying to convey a moment in an intellectual sense, while the latter is more precise and wisely able to convey the simple, true poetic feeling of the moment. It's visceral, as opposed to intellectual. The story earns its title a little further down the track. In my view, every story should earn its title. Even if that title is the character's name, for example. That character must then be worthy of being a titular character. So in the story, the sun crested the mountain surrounding them, and it became, quote, a sudden, unobstructed fire. It outlined the young people's backs with a faintly furred halo. While here, in the garden, it caught the head of a silver dandelion, fiercely, tenderly transfigured into light. End quote. And then perhaps my favourite link between this story and the story nearly at hand is this ten-year-old being struck by the beauty of the moment so that there is an undeniable divinity that forever informs their perspective. Now, all Maddie's spirituality is no one's business, but I will say I enjoy the depth of a character's philosophy one can glean when they feel, truly feel, a divine sense of the world. When this happens, I find the character becomes so much more powerful for one thing, because they are looking at the chaos of reality through a philosophical lens that makes it make sense and gives it purpose. She says, quote, I experienced a bliss of thought, new and inevitable. As I said, lieber Gott, if I ever ask you for anything, you don't even have to listen, because nothing is necessary except this, end quote. From that, I believe the child decided then that what mattered in the world, what life was, was the beauty inherent in all of nature's harmonic moments of bliss. From here on in Kyotis, I'm going to be a bit more conservative with how many direct quotes from the story I share, as I don't want the New Yorker to sue me before they come to their senses and sponsor old Maddie. They continue their jolly jaunt across the Alps, having a much easier time of it than Hannibal did, but perhaps less fun because no elephants. It is here revealed that this Lucinda is no ordinary child, but a world-famous ice-skating star with a world-famous pirouette. As a result of this sense of fame and accomplishment, her older self regrets that she felt too accomplished and famous to listen to what her father was explaining during their walk through the Alps. A place where, no matter who you are, it matters not. You're in the Alps. There's no occupation, there's no reputation, there's just you and nature. You really feel at this point, without any kind of sob story or self-loathing, the quiet but profound regret that the narrator feels for having neglected what turned out to be a rare opportunity to experience fully a walk with her father. Nevertheless, she was enjoying the blue sky as they lay down to rest, the grass growing by her cheek, watching the engineering marvel that is a spider's journey. Then people came and ruined everything as they always do. A group of friends came along the path, walking, talking, and laughing with each other. The 
skits. The poor kid was smitten by the image of the group, and all the promise of fun and validation that seems just out of reach when we perceive ourselves as missing out. Her and her father, adorably dubbed Hervati, venture forth. The narrator remembers that just after she gave birth many years later to her first child, she compared that exhaustion to when she was 10, sitting and panting under a tree after climbing beyond her strength to the top of the mountain, staring out upon a new world. Man, I want to climb another mountain. I died before I got to the top of Kilimanjaro, so this little girl is really rubbing it in. Moving on. They stop for eats, the group of young friends at another table, while Lucinda and Avati eat their mitagesin, which means lunch, while talking with a cowherd fella. The meal they had was called the Emperor's Pancake, served with blueberries and a glass of fresh milk. I was talking recently with some friends about what our favourite meal was, and I think it's a profound personal question that everyone should answer. Because it's not some trivial query about what your go-to food is. It's your favourite, singular meal of your life. An experience that can never be replicated, but it nourished you, body and soul. This emperor's pancake, I think, was such a meal. As said in the story, it is one she often thinks about, and has never been able to reproduce. How could she? Because the meal was the emperor's pancake, served with blueberries, fresh cow's milk, and a source of a rewarding but utterly exhausting journey across the Alps with her father. And so, dear Kiltis, a favourite meal can be anything, from two-minute noodles to a roast chicken, because you'll never remember how it truly tasted, but you'll remember the experience of eating it, of it filling your soul, and the story behind that. Alas, this short story is not one about a favourite meal. This story is one about the tragedy of youth, unable to appreciate their blissful present. While they're enjoying their meal, and Lucinda's not listening to her father talk to the cowherd, she watched the young people, torturously curious about them. She watched them talk merrily, clapping one another on the back and putting pepper in one another's soup and liked one another. What a bunch of flaunting peacocked puppycocks. Though I think Lucinda thought they were pretty cool. So when they upped to leave, she got up too. Her and Vati followed them out with the general movement, wherein Vati got to talking with one of the young whippersnappers. But the whippersnapper was a schmuck. Well, as much of a schmuck as silly young people are especially when unable to hold their own against the influence of their peers. Lucinda suddenly was burning with simultaneous rage and embarrassment, angry that the blonde-haired boy fiddled, not listening to Vati's kick-ass climbing anecdote, and was itching to leave, and when finally diving for his escape, he was applauded and laughed on by his dumb, probably bourgeois friends, and embarrassed enough to want to run away from Vati at the same time. Quote, I was angry with the boy who had not wanted to hear Vati's story and had wanted to get away from Vati. Hot damn. That right there, my kiltis, is a sentence that encapsulates the internal struggle of a child's social desires, at once loyal to who they truly care about and terrified of any kind of social vulnerability. This is what I wrote when I first reviewed the short story. Upon reflection of that sentence, I'm starting to think that she was just angry that he didn't listen to the story and had wanted to get away from Vati. But frankly, I enjoy my interpretation better. The narrator remembers how she suddenly hated the kids for their condescension and rudeness. Definitely bourgeois but also I think because their unwillingness to listen to Vati reminded her of her own failing in that regard. And so, she was angry most at herself. In truth, a feeling that didn't let her feel like herself, the world-famous skater, but more just a foolish kid that failed to listen atop a mountain. She wanted to go home, and her father had hold of her by the wrist and guided her down the mountain, stones rolling underfoot, while the sun set over them. In her borderline panic attack, as she came head to head with her own internal fear, I think of not appreciating her father and the experience. She remembered what she had said to God earlier upon seeing the sunlit dandelion. If I ever asked you for anything, you don't have to listen. 
because nothing is necessary except this. Upon remembering this, I found the prose of the last paragraph mirrors the poetic and world-loving style of the paragraphs before the young people, Petui, were introduced. She has remembered here, she has remembered what was important, and relishes, quietly, the way night descends upon the Alps as she is guided home by her loving Vati. And that, my dear, dear Kiotis, is how you do a damn nice character arc in a poetic short story. What I liked most about this, other than how wonderfully it managed the layers of narration between the 90-year-old narrator, the 20-year-old short story of the 10-year-old girl, is how well it utilised different styles within a consistent voice to convey the character's arc. At the beginning, as mentioned, tis a poetic, even overly poetic, indulgence into the beauty of nature and the journey they were on. Then it became a frantic and anxiety-driven narrative, focused on projections of people and subtextual anxieties about self-perception, rather than anything else. And people suck. Then it goes back to pure poetry, in love with the world and one's father, not trying too hard to intellectually learn the lesson of the divine dandelion, as the child was going at first with the overly poetic descriptions, but indeed, now feeling it, having taken the lesson and philosophy to heart. It's a beautifully written story, linked in the show notes. And so I give Dandelion by Law Siegel a firm four musketeers out of four. The show's first story that's all for one and one for all. Huzzah! Well, as always, Kyotis, the yeast was taking its sweet time to rise. This is, of course, because I am now alone on a deserted island, notwithstanding my somehow numerous enemies, and thus I have to grow my own grain and make my own bread from scratch. You know what they say, if you don't have bread to break with friends, make some bread, then make some friends. That's an old Matty dime of wisdom, and there's always time for a dime. That's two dimes. You owe me a cook. Just as I was building my new best bud from a mound of sand, who I dubbed Monday, I decided that the coconut shell full of seawater I was swilling and drinking would pair well with a Hemingway quote. Maybe his zeal and gumption would make this grain grow faster. Then I'd need only figure out how to make bread. I'm, I'm assuming it's easy. Here's one of my favourites. Today's advice from Papa Hemingway. Cue the music. Today it's a bunch of crustaceans who have come from the shore to play violin. They're snapping the strings every which way with their sharp clangs. Good writing is true writing. If a man is making a story up, it will be true in proportion to the amount of knowledge of life that he has, and how conscientious he is, so that when he makes something up, it is as it would truly be. When breaking his cardinal rule of never talking about writing, which he broke often, he would pose questions on behalf of those seeking his advice, dubbing us young writers mice, and himself YC, for your correspondent. The mice ask, then what about imagination? Your correspondent. It is the one thing beside honesty that a good writer must have. The more he learns from experience, the more truly he can imagine. If he gets so he can imagine truly enough, people will think that the things he relates all happened, and that he is just reporting. If you ask old Maddie, which you always should, this is not only how you beat writer's block and develop a writing discipline, but also how you find your own undeniable voice on the page. The best advice I ever got about writing, not from Papa Hemingway, was from my screenwriting lecturer. She told me, back when I was worried about my stories being unoriginal, that no one can tell your story like you can. It's why the Castaway story has been written time and time again, because when written honestly, even though the situation might be the same, it's a new voice, a new perspective, a new story. I've said it before, but honest writing to me is the hallmark of good storytelling, when you are completely immersed in the world, not just in terms of characters and lore, but the earnest feelings bleeding from the page. And the thing with his advice about true writing and imagining truly is it doesn't matter how widely you imagine, you can still write truly. Indeed, your pal old Maddie is writing a space pirate novel, 
and it's one of the most honest pieces I have endeavoured upon yet, as I have tried my best to write every single line honestly, believing in the experience I put down. But enough shameless self-promotion, for which I give no apology, of course. My new buddy Monday enjoyed it too, didn't you, Monday? Well, what do you know? Boy, this seawater is good. As I was drinking my fine vintage seawater, a fellow in goatskin by the name of Rob came up to me. A fellow castaway. I tried to hide my disappointment that he wasn't Tom Hanks, but was grateful for the company just the same. He knocked the seawater out of my hands, rude, and dissolved my buddy Monday, ruder. But apparently the water was making me insane. Old Maddie insane. Why, turn me into a turtle and scoop me out of my shell. That's some daffy talk. Turns out he knows how to make bread. But nothing about delicious word sandwiches. Preposterous, I know. Considering this show's already releasing quality content more frequently than the Beatles today. So I decided to tell my new bud Rob, Monday having been taken into the tide and lost to sea, about the first and foremost true imagination writer, Daniel Defoe, who, when publishing his archetypal castaway novel Robinson Crusoe in 1719, was so convincing and earnest that people thought it was a true account and not at all fiction. Classic Defoe. I will say this once. He's not Willem Defoe. My buddy Rob began the bread-making process and smiled coyly when I mentioned old D.D., He was probably thinking about that William Defoe meme, I would guess. The folly of the fool. I shall berate Robbie for a spell, then we'll be back for the bread. Old Maddie and Rob, making bread, making friendship, and making fun. No, Rob, I shan't help. I'm working. Yes, this is work. So, this will be some complicated yieldy bread here, Kiotis. Indeed, in a lot of ways, it is not a simple question. Who is Daniel Defoe? What we do know is he wrote Robinson Crusoe, to the best that we know, and possibly wrote a whole bunch of other fun, wondrous jazz that he probably incockily toted as history, because he knew he could, and he was a little cheeky to say the yeast. To get us started, let us begin with the facts, such as they are. Claiming the facts of this kind of history, when the underdepictions of the faces of these people are generic drawings with all the nuance of a morally sketchy, and literally sketchy, political cartoon, is about as shoot from the hip as a history buff gets. Pretty much, I'll shoot a target, and a bunch of my peers will half nod, agreeing that that was probably a target and not a civilian. Daniel Defoe, not Willem Defoe, was born as Daniel Foe in 1660, probably on 4th Street, in London, England. Unlike so many of our other sandwich authors, he was not a lawyer before becoming an author, but a merchant, and not a very good one at that, by participating in several failing businesses. But unlike Trump, He was honest about it, and faced bankruptcy and many aggressive creditors. See? Honesty always pays off, just usually other people. Not quite done upsetting the bigwigs, and we can say that literally for this period of history, he was a prolific political pamphleteer, which landed him in prison for slander. Imagine having to survive in one of those medieval dungeons with murderers, thieves, and pillagers, and having to admit that you're there for slander. Ah, that's a mighty fine shiv you have there, thou jackanape. But I already told that guy that you're a dork. Therefore, concordantly, thou art my bitch. Daniel Defoe, slander gangster. Welcome to the explicit territory for delicious word sandwich, I guess. There's no other way to say that joke, and I ain't giving it up. Later in life, he decided the pen was mightier than the shiv, and turned to fiction, writing Robinson Crusoe in 1719, easily one of the most widely read and influential novels of all time, and still holds up Kiotis, even if in need of more modernized and digestible formatting. Daniel Defoe died in 1731. Now, that's a broad outline of Defoe's life. A bad sketch, if you will. It's like I'm trying to get you to say his name in Pictionary. 
for the last time, stop guessing Willem Dafoe. Here's a bit more detail. There'll be a bit of a retread, but as me and my buddy Rob know, when it comes to desert islands, you retread the same ground a hundred times over, and never quite know what you're going to find every time. Meticulous adventure! Right, Rob? Don't look at me like that. I know so much more about Dafoe than you do, foe. Yeah, that, is that a good? Yeah, we're running with it. Daniel Defoe was the son of James Foe, a London butcher, proudly a member of the Worshipful Company of Butchers, a livery company that's still going on today. Little Danny changed his name to Defoe, wanting to sound more gentlemanly. Honestly, I don't know how Defoe is more regal than Foe, but I guess it's a little less faux pas. Okay, okay, bad joke, but it was actually incredibly clever, as he would, on occasion, claim to be descended from the Dubot Faux family, spelt F-A-U-X, like a lie. I wonder if that was a pun on Defoe's part. Alas, he was in need of a hearty chuckle, a sensible chuckle even. He had survived the Great Plague of London, the Great Fire of London, which left only his and two other houses on his street standing, the raid on the Medway by a Dutch fleet, as in Vikings, and lost his mother by the age of 10. So let the kid have a pun in his name, Jesus Louises. Defoe went to an academy called Newington Green and graduated under the administration of Reverend Charles Morton. A real secular time, remember, Kiotis. Ye oldie bread. In 1683, not long after graduation, he went into business, as so many young hopeful graduates do today, having given up an earlier intent on becoming a dissenting minister, giving up his dream just like so many young hopeful graduates do today. So ye oldie, and yet so ye with it. He travelled often, selling many mirthful goods such as wine and wool, but was rarely out of debt. At this point, I'm starting to imagine Daniel Defoe is just a graduate from my university, but he at least had the moxie to travel around to sell wine and wool. I reckon if I travelled abroad, I could just sell wine and or wool. After all, I already sell a good yarn, am I right? Ow! Alright, no more, I get it. Jeez. Now, unlike myself, who will just die with my hex debt unpaid, those chumps, Daniel Defoe actually went bankrupt in 1692, paying his debts for nearly a decade thereafter, and by 1703 he had decided to leave the business industry altogether and chase his real dream. Here's where he stops being so hashtag relatable. But hot damn, is it strange that a 17th century writer had such a similar path to all us wee Kiotis today? However, what I will mention is that he went to prison several times for debts his total debt possibly amounting to as much as £17,000. I decided to get obsessive on this score, £17,000, but found that comparing the pounds of the 1700s to our currency is not a simple or easy task. Thanks to a humble soul in one of the few non-radioactive corners of Reddit, there were several ways to crudely estimate the conversion. I opted for the simplest one, which unfortunately has an encoded university link, so I'm relying on the spark notes of the post's author. Essentially, it said that a pound in 1700 would be worth about 189 US in 2015, which is approximately about 270 Australian dollars today. Though don't trust my math, which means that by today's currency, Defoe could have owed folk up to 4,590,000 Australian dollary dues. So he was not a good merchant. And reading about his marriage is one of the most transparently financial decisions I've ever read. Nevertheless, his marriage to Mary Tuffley lasted 50 years and produced eight children. Let us be thankful, Kiotti students out there, that we do not go to prison for outstanding debts. At least, for now. Vague political commentary. Huzzah. I wonder if I myself, having accidentally faked my death, am on the lamb. No, I'm on a goddamn desert island, surrounded by lovely little lambs that I keep offending instead of eating. But now we're at that unfortunate stage we're never admiring the career path of a legend where it cannot be emulated nor related to. In so many ways, don't you get me wrong, the world in which we live is an objectively more pleasant and free place 
than ever before in human history. Though your friend Old Maddie is oft described as a man out of time, being right at home in the 1930s especially, I'm a far cry from that tired lamentation of being born in the wrong era. This is a great era. I get all the music and the movies of the 1930s that I want, and I get, you know, good health and not polio. However, one element of the past we can pine for is the old-timey lack of boundaries and professions. Today, to get into any career without connections, and often even with, means stacks of degrees, and to foe-sized debts to just open the door. But back then, oh, back then, you just had to prove you had an ability for it. Hell, Papa Hemingway was a journalist in Chicago when he was 20, and anyone could be a war correspondent in the old wars if you were nuts and had the guts. Back on track, Daniel Defoe indulged in his passion for politics and published his first literary political pamphlet in 1683. So he would have been 23 by our timeline, Kiotis. That's how old old Matty is if you don't count my immortality. And let me tell you, I don't think I'll be getting a political pamphlet published anytime soon. But stop talking about me, Kiotis. In 1685, Defoe joined the ill-fated Monmouth Rebellion against King James I, and like Robinson Crusoe's luck, narrowly escaped destruction by gaining a pardon before being sentenced before the bloody assizes of Judge George Jeffreys. Feel free to look this up, but fear not, we will learn more about James's terrible crime spree of unjust trials when we inevitably do my favourite pirate novel, Captain Blood by Raphael Sabatini, who is no doubt inspired by Daniel Defoe, the first swashbuckling novelist I dare declare. Defoe kept on writing political works, then, of course, just casually working as a journalist until early 1700s, because they could just do that and fall into these jobs that we need six degrees for. By Zeus, why even do a literary or fine arts degree? I should have just gone into goddamn journalism or law to be a frickin' fiction writer, apparently. Let's look forward to the day, Kyuttis, when one of these literary legends actually studied story writing. I mean, Sylvia Plath wasn't even accepted into a literary course, and she straight up was uniquely masterful. Seriously, though, stop distracting me. During this period, Defoe focused on writing in support of King William III, also known as William Henry of Orange. Here I made sure Defoe wasn't a problematic supporter of a dark figure of history, and was happy to find that as far as monarchs go, William III was pretty tops. William III's main legacy consists of containing France when it was looking at imposing its pernicious will across much of Europe, and ending a bitter feud between Parliament and the Crown that had lasted since James I in 1603. James I, Kiotis, if you don't know, was an A-class whole bag. During this patriotic period, some of his most popular works included The True Born Englishman, which sounds xenophobic, but it actually shed light on racial prejudice in England following attacks on William for being a foreigner. There's more of that surprising good thinking on Defoe's part to come, Mike Yotis. And The Review, a periodical that was published from 1704 to 1713, during the reign of Queen Anne, King William III's successor. Political opponents of Defoe's repeatedly had him imprisoned for his writing in 1713. Joke's on you, naysayers, because incarcerating writers is one of the greatest medals that can be pinned to their legends, other than being fired from their own projects and alcoholism, of course. Then in 1719, here we go. Daniel Defoe finally decided he was going to write a novel at the age of 59. Considering that this fellow went on to write some of the most legendary novels of all time, I hope it's pretty goddamn clear that it's never too late to write. And if you think you'd enjoy it, do it. And if you think you'd like to make it your living, do it more. He published Robinson Crusoe in 1719, a glorious, bold fiction based on several short essays that he had composed over the years. Honest writing, however embellished and fictitious, takes time and it was worth it. Though Defoe in his own day was known as a political controversialist and pamphleteer, Crusoe was an immediate success. Following his first larger-than-life lunge into literature was a flurry of novels telling tales of rogues, pirates, and general criminals, including Mole Flanders, Colonel Jack, Captain Singleton, Journal of the Plague Year, and his last major fiction piece, Roxana, in 1724. I have read none of these. Please do not ask me about them. 
though admittedly I have now sold myself on them and must read them all. One thing I will add to this list, though, is what I would call a fiction, perhaps one of the foe's greatest, A General History of the Pirates, published in 1724 after the generally assumed pseudonym Captain Charles Johnson. This is the book that shapes our modern conception of pirates to this day, featuring the over-embellished mythic tales of legendary pirates like Blackbeard, Henry Avery, Anne Bonny and Jack Rackham, and inspiring Robert Louis Stevenson, J.M. Barry, and countless more. Many scholars have suggested Defoe as the true author, and many have disputed this claim, but your old pal Almighty thinks it has to be Defoe, at least as a co-author. I have read both Crusoe and History of Pirates numerous times throughout my life, and never once doubted the similarity in their style of the prose and the style they depict. And personally, I like having History of Pirates as part of my Robinson Crusoe mythos. Indeed, A General History of Pirates was toted as an official history of the Golden Age of Piracy, and yet, I consider it among my many books of various mythologies. With Robinson Crusoe also bluffed as a non-fiction during its time, it would be well within Danny's modus operandi to have tried his hand again at literally writing history. I mean, not only had the guy written several books titled A History or A General History, but he also is known to have used at least 198 pen names. For a guy who chose his own name, he sure was loath to use it. Back to his official career. In the mid-1720s, he made his grand return to writing editorial pieces, once again risking prison time by addressing subjects such as morality, politics, and the breakdown of social order in England. Having written Crusoe alone, Defoe's perspective on social order was one to take seriously. Some of his later works include Everybody's Business is Nobody's Business, 1725. Not sure what that title's meant to mean, I'll be honest. Conjugal Lewdness, or Matrimonial Whoredom, 1727. And a follow-up piece to the Conjugal Lewdness series, entitled... A Treatise Concerning the Use and Abuse of the Marriage Bed. Hmm. Because Crusoe is cast away and doesn't really interact with women until the end of the story, I never really picked up on either lewdness or prudeness, but from this I think we can safely assume that Defoe was a bit of a prude and a fan of ye olde sexual repression. All I'll say about that, Kiot, is, is as far as people of the time go in terms of personal views, this was not the worst at all it could have been. I don't want to be that fella like an outdated justice system that bases morality off comparatives, because then it gets all distorted and unbalanced and there is no justice. But I will say that Daniel Defoe being a prude, while, as I'll explain, being unusually quite progressive in his acceptance of others and views on life, that I think we can accept this part of him and still think he's A-OK, all context considering. Especially regarding he was born about 310 years before the sexual revolution. But enough about sex, you crazed fiends. Now for the grand finale to the bread. Because he's dead. Daniel Defoe died on April 24th, 1731. I think it's a testament to a self-made legend that though he rose from obscurity without even a documented birthday standing the test of time, here we are with a certain death date. Oh, for the days when you had to earn a death date. Daniel Defoe is remembered today as a prolific journalist and author, fearless and forward-thinking, writing passionately and honestly. He has been lauded for his hundreds of fictions and non-fiction works, from political pamphlets to other journalistic pieces to fantasy-filled and swashbuckling novels. His characters have been brought to the stage and the screen time and time again, and his first fiction work alone has defined not only the castaway in humanity's mind, but also the first-person novel. When I pick up a book this old, honestly, I expect to have to explain some sort of horrible factor of the artist for us to separate from the art, else we ruin our delicious word sandwich bread. But honestly, with Defoe, perhaps because there was so little known about him, or because he was just too busy writing and writing to have some horrible dark side, I found little to furrow my brow about, and so I've decided the bread will honour him in his wholesome, self-made adventurous sweetness by saying that to begin the Robinson Crusoe delicious word sandwich, you must, oh god 
damn it. Somehow, my research seemed to admit the fact Daniel Defoe might have been super into colonialism, or maybe even slave trading. I'm gonna be honest, Kyotis, this might ruin the sandwich. Or will it? Small segue and fun fact. For the Coen Brothers film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, George Clooney learned his accent from his Kentucky-based Uncle Jack for research. Clooney sent the script to his uncle, with instructions that he read it out loud on tape. Clooney threw away the script and used the tape recorder, he recalled, which worked a trick for his accent, I think. But then, oh, but then. As Clooney tells it, After two months of shooting, Joel and Ethan came over and they're like, You say every word exactly as written. Except you don't say hell, and you don't say damn. Clooney realized then and there that his Baptist uncle had recited the script word for word, censored. As Clooney said, he rewrote the Coen brothers. Well, someone's gone done rewritten Defoe's history for me, getting rid of all the goddamn slavery and colonialism. I mean, I knew by reading Crusoe that Defoe had a more or less contemporary opinion of slavery at the time, as in, it was something that was just part of society. But Crusoe was also enslaved himself, and suffers the horror and humiliation of it, which I thought was Defoe being all... See, slavery ain't so good, is it, white folk? And we shouldn't do it. But saying it's subtle-like, I guess not. But we shall explore, for I have not said anything thus that is not true, as much as I know. There's just more to this than meets the initial historical eye. And so, my kiotis, it appears that we just might have the show's first club sandwich. A time of first for the first English novel. Ain't that grand, Rob? Yes, this does mean you have to make more bread. Don't look at me like that. What have you made there for the initial Defoe analysis? Ah, very wholesome, self-made, sweet and relatable honey oat bread. Did you hear that, Kiotis? Honey oat bread. I don't know whether you put that on the outside and you put more pernicious bread in the middle, or vice versa. Alas, Kiotis, I fear there is more to uncover here. So I'll start off this new dark chapter with a bit of light trivia. As is the case with many a wonderful short story, it was a real-life inspiration for Robinson Crusoe, and it wasn't old Maddie, let me tell you. No, it wasn't. How would that make sense, you silly? No, the supposed most likely inspiration was a fellow by the name of Alexander Selkirk, famous for having spent four years living on an uninhabited island as a castaway. Now his legend is all but forgotten, eclipsed by Crusoe and Tom Hanks. Jeez, hope the time away from damn people was worth it at least. There's a link to this fellow's life in the show notes, but the crux of it was, he was a sailor on the land because he failed to appear in church, is another charge to have a think about, he became a buccaneer, fell out with his captain saying the ship was going to sink and asked to be left on the island, now known as Robinson Crusoe Island. He immediately regretted his decision, survived for four years in spite of nature and Spanish pirate crews hunting for him, got picked up, became a captain, made his fortune, some other jazz. My favourite part is that the ship he bet his life on sinking did indeed sink, leaving only that foolish captain and seven of the men alive. Okay, maybe favourite isn't the right word, but it's funny how fate works out. But back to the depressing part of all this. So in the story that I'm sure one day I'll get to, Crusoe, before being famously cast away, takes up ownership of a plantation in Brazil. And indeed, the voyage on which he is ruined is one on the way to picking up slaves. Karma. And again, considering Crusoe had been actually enslaved himself, I thought the story had a subtle anti-slavery thing going. Until, of course, he returns to civilization and claims a fortune generated by this plantation he did nothing on except get it up and running. And this fortune was amassed from, you guessed it, the labour of slavery. This leads us to what was admitted. Late in my research, during which I was having a jolly good time because Crusoe himself is quite an amicable and forward-thinking character, as I'll explain, it stood to reason that Defoe being one in my research was natural enough. Then I found an article by The Guardian. Now, for the most part, I found this article to be contrived, seeking to expose scandalous and controversial takes on the text, more indicting how people interpret it rather than the text itself. 
such as the colonialist message educators drew from it in their their curriculums to expound their delusional fanaticism for everything English. It dubs the tale a colonialist fairy tale, but as I spin and analyse the yarn for you, I hope you'll find, as I do, that as far as we know colonialist parables can go, that this one is pretty mild. I've linked the article in the show notes, and I invite thee to give it a read and judge for yourself, but other than the opening, which must be addressed, I found little substantial argument against our classic castaway. As for the opening of this article, as in the book, the slave industry was unfortunately extremely normalised. Slavery had been an established institution since ancient times, much like the coal industry is for us, in spite of people knowing even then that slavery is a bad time and a bad look for everyone, much like the coal industry is for us. And so, on top of the fictional Crusoe picking up a fortune at the end of the book flippantly from the unseen labour of slaves, so did attempt Defoe. I say attempt because, again, not a good businessman. I'm not sure how true this is, especially as I was overly unimpressed with the full article, but it stands against some reason and some quick corroboration. Defoe, after all, though he might love his internal monologue and in his writing, outwardly wanted to be regarded among the elite of English society. He was definitely a massive fan of English expansion, the grain of salt we must always take but not always add to our delicious word sandwich. And, like any fat cat today, he will conduct business where the money is, to hell with morality or personal convictions. Yay. So, to get to the yarn before you brew this bread into beer and pass out from boredom, I'll cut this short. Daniel Defoe probably invested in enterprises that utilise slave trading and colonial expansion. I don't have any authorities on this, and though this can't be ignored or forgiven, I think, at least, it can be understood due to the context of the time. What I will say is this text, I hope, will surprise you. To me, it did not hit like a colonial's fairy tale. Sure, there are elements of such a message, but I honestly feel you have to look for them and put them together to think that's what the story was trying to say. A literary Rorschach test, if you will. An abyss in which one sees what they want to see, and I simply cannot think of a better way to encapsulate the essence of what a desert island castaway story should be for people. The ultimate narrative mirror. And so, to acknowledge this dichotomy between the Defoe that I described before finding this Guardian article and the Defoe that I found after, I've decided that the two breads will be the honey oat bread, I would assume on the inside of the club sandwich, the middle piece of bread, and then on the outside, sourdough. Very white, very fluffy, very low on conviction. And, of course, it leaves a weird taste in your mouth. Much like when you talk about figures who did good work like Robinson Crusoe, but attempted to run slavery operations. By Jupiter's Johnson, that is too much bread, Rob. We're gonna need a whole lot of meat and a lot of cheese to balance that cockadoodle mountain of yours. Are you trying to ruin the Robinson Crusoe sandwich, Rob? Do you even know how to be a castaway? How many bears are chasing you? Oh, right. Well, mine has an inadequate rifle and a unicycle. Damn you, Jim Horsby! But now is not the time to compare our enemy list sizes. You need to go and fetch some meat and cheese. I told you why I can't do it. I'm working. Go leave my studio. No, it was your house, chum. Go and take your dunce cap off too. You look like a fool, Rob. If only the great Crusoe could see you. Oh, how he'd weep. What meat and cheese does the sandwich need? Well, we haven't found that out yet, have we, you cream corn? I have to tell the story to find the meat and explain the characters to find the cheese, see? I'm gonna do them at once because that way, you get, the story will convey the characters as the characters drive the story. It's called narrative structure, which admittedly this book kind of just does its best. Be gone, corn of cream! Swell guy, Rob. 
but he has no idea how to be a proper castaway like old Maddie. He thinks just because he planted crops, built several fortified shelters and domesticated cattle, that he owns the place. Capitalist. I thought he'd never leave. Now on to the story of the heroic Robinson Crusoe. Tis the 17th century, and our boy Robinson Crusoe of York is a plucky Englishman with a heart burning with adventure, in spite of, indeed, perhaps because of, he has come from a world of comfort and security. He is the youngest son of a merchant, encouraged to study law and forget adventure. Alas, Crusoe professes instead his yearning to go to sea. His family being firmly against this pursuit only seems to convince him more that he must go, but, in a last-ditch effort to persuade the doomed sailor, his father explains that it is better to seek a modest, secure life, noting that Robinson had lost his older brother to a similar folly. Against all wishes, his brother had fought and died in low country wars to the north, I think. Robinson heard his father's words, but like so many young spirits with a dream burning in their soul, he eventually succumbs to temptation and embarks on a ship bound for London with a friend, who promises to be Robinson's erstwhile partner at sea. If you're wondering... Yes, this is a whole lot like going to art school when your folks want you to be a lawyer. Take that. I'm off to take fun and unnecessary risks, parentals. This immediately is a wondrously bad idea. A storm hits as if in direct retaliation to Crusoe's foolishness, nigh taking the lives of Crusoe and his friend. Here tis when the friend is dissuaded from sea travel for good. One little death-defying storm and you're quits. What a lame I need not imagine this kind of bitter sting. The first time I was ever in a musical, I had but one friend I could trust in that strange and mysterious world. He quit within two weeks, not telling me, and I was left with twice the rolls and half the courage. We laugh about this often. Well, he laughs. All the same, undaunted and alone, Crusoe still goes on to set himself up as a merchant on a ship leaving London. During the storm, he prays to God and makes all kinds of promises like never swearing again and returning to his poor, weeping parents, but when the storm clears, so does his belief in such vows and higher powers. Indeed, Robinson Crusoe, after leaving his parents, never seems to think back to them, nor, in all of his trials and tribulations, how good it would be to return to them and be happily connected once more. I found it at once fascinating and surprisingly refreshing reading this 18th century book with a protagonist who really didn't believe in God. This is in a time where it was illegal not to show up to church, remember? The audacity of this Defoe boyo! Spoiler alert, in probably his only clean voyage in all of his history, this trip as a merchant is financially successful. Any kind of travel with Robinson Crusoe is about as wise as travelling on any form of public transportation with Liam Neeson, and drunk on his success and youthful cockiness, Crusoe plans yet another voyage, tempting fate, leaving his early profits in the care of a friendly widow who I shall name Miss Fairweather, for she is never named in the book, just always the widow. It's actually quite sad. Surprising no one, the second voyage does not prove as fortunate, being mildly inconvenienced when the ship is captured by Moorish pirates and our silly hero is enslaved to a po- and our silly hero is enslaved to a potentate in the North African town of Salih. I found it quite hilarious to be honest, reading Crusoe's reaction to being enslaved by the pirate captain. At the surprising change of my circumstances from a merchant to a miserable slave, I was perfectly overwhelmed. And now I looked back upon my father's prophetic discourse to me, that I should be miserable, and none to relieve me, which I thought now was so effectively brought to pass that it could not be worse, that now the hand of heaven had overtaken me, and I was undone without redemption. 
But alas, this was but a taste of the misery I was to go through, as will appear in the sequel of this story. It is very common at this stage of the book that the idea of God only ever occurs to him in times of dire strife. As a sense of spiritualism develops throughout the story, I will say that he becomes much more aware of himself. I'll get to how he does this in a way I found quite admirable, but tis interesting seeing how hypocritical and erratic he is now to later on in the story. After being a slave for two years, as years pass in this book dangerously casually, a chance of salvation reveals itself on a fishing expedition. He and a slave boy named Zuri break free and sail down the African coast on a small raft that Crusoe had done well to equip with extra supplies. This is one of my favourite parts of the story, as Zuri and Crusoe work together and become, it seems, friends, facing their fears and oft being generous with finding food for one another. Soon enough, a kindly Portuguese captain picks them up, buys Zuri from Crusoe, which, which I thought was terribly inconsistent, considering he had just went through two years of slavery himself, and this captain takes Crusoe to Brazil. Here I was upset, as I said. I liked how the relationship between Zuro and Robinson had developed, and even though it's said that he was loath to sell Zuri's liberty after all the help he gave, for some reason he accepts a compromise with the captain, in which the boy would be given his liberty, which is already friggin' his, in ten years if, if the boy agrees to turn Christian. Zuri did, and he was subsequently released after ten years, but that is a ridiculous compromise considering what Crusoe had just gone through. Now, Kiotis, you're probably thinking here, old Matty, there's that colonialism the Guardian was talking about. Well, I still disagree, as though this is indeed inconsistent and unwittingly cruel of Crusoe, this is simply the world in which the story is in. It's not advocating this as the right or admirable thing to do. In truth, it's more or less obvious that it's an awful thing to do, but it's just how this terrible time worked, whereas I think the Guardian was trying to say the story celebrated such colonialist imposing and celebrated a practice of slavery, in which it is explicitly said that Crusoe does feel bad about it. Still does it, though, and I would like to tie that into our short story from previous, in which this is the cruel, ambivalent nature of youth. Anyway, having a good old time in Brazil, Crusoe establishes himself as a plantation owner, and frankly, despite himself, soon becomes successful. Eager for slave labour, eager for slave labour, weird thing to say, and its economic advantages, and apparently even more eager to make this a harder sell for old Matty, he embarks on a slave-gathering expedition to West Africa, but ends up shipwrecked off the coast of Trinidad. Honestly, he had it coming. Part of me hopes that Defoe was subtly saying that the wrath of God befalls those who should know better than to indulge in slave labour, or even to those who commit the evils that they have suffered themselves. But alas, I can't convince myself of this. Unfortunately, Kiotis, slave labour really was a normalised industry of the time. Apparently it was on this score that James Joyce griped with the story, that Crusoe was so damn inconsistent when it came to how he felt about slavery. On one hand, I know it would be similar to racism. It likely was. But on the other hand, the way Robinson is later so implicitly respectful of Friday and other people of different cultures makes us seem oversimplified, and that perhaps Defoe, like Mark Twain centuries later, he wanted to denounce slavery, but didn't want to ruffle too many feathers and get thrown in prison. Again. Going into this story, I thought it would be the suburbia stifled cocky youth goes to sea once and gets shipwrecked, then we're into the castaway plot. But no! Robinson had to be shipwrecked on one occasion, enslaved on the second, and then shipwrecked again to be properly cast away and maybe learn something. Third time's the job. Imagine if Tom Hanks' castaway had him go through similar trials. You'd almost think they'd cast Jim Carrey instead for the lark. 
Anyway, welcome to Robinson Crusoe Island, Kiotis, as it is called in our world today. So when you're reading through this tale, you'll notice above all the meticulous nature of it. Crusoe relates to you, the reader, every step of his rationale and his actions. In some ways, he's kind of a bore. It's why it's so effective in getting you on side in spite of all of the period-related vices. During the seemingly rudimentary telling, you might find yourself bored or inclined to skip ahead till he's onto the next project, but I implore you to bear with the story, even if that means just bearing with me, for what I love the most about this book is how, like a good puzzle, piece by piece, you feel like you've survived on the island with him, and as projects fail and come to fruition, respectively, you share in those victories and defeats wholeheartedly until the end, the result being some of the best satisfaction that escapist storytelling can offer. This is a journey worth walking, step by step. Remember, Kiotis, what Papa said not only about truly imagined writing, but also about writing honestly that you create an experience that happens for your readers. And experiences is what we should all be living for. We're rich in old Maddie Dimes today, aren't we? Unto the story! Cast away on the beach, Crusoe makes 12 missions to the shipwreck, which advantageously caught on some distant rocks to salvage guns, powder, food, and other items, and stores them in a cave and takes in-depth inventory and begins to plan a more sustainable shelter. Minecraft ought to be named Robinson Crusoe, to be honest. His first shelter I found very quaint and fun. He erected more or less a tent in front of a small cave under a mountain, and so he had a natural terrace with a cabin. But due to paranoia of the mountain dropping rocks on his tent and squashing him, as well as the cave itself collapsing in, he decides to build a more secure shelter in open groves, surrounded by walls of trees and barricades. It's actually really cool seeing how his shelters are created, especially as he begins placing several bases around the island, one of which he charmingly refers to as his holiday home. He erects a cross that he inscribes the date of his arrival, September 30th, 1659, and makes a notch every day in order to never lose track of time. Impressively, he actually keeps a pretty accurate record. The novel has a recurring motif where the day, such as September 30th, marks the anniversary of several of these calamitous events. In this case, it was the same day that he was taken by pirates and then slaves. Whereas, spoiler alert, when he escapes the island on December 19th, 28 years, 2 months and 19 days later, it is the same anniversary as when he escaped the slavers with Zuri. But we get much ahead of ourselves. Crusoe, despite warning us of a lack of ink, also keeps an in-depth journal of his household activities, noting his attempts to make candles, his lucky discovering of sprouting corn grain, eventually marked as another miracle of providence by him, and his construction of a cellar, among other events. T'was in June 1660, the year of Defoe's birth, coincidentally, that he falls ill and hallucinates that an angel visits, warning him to repent. A rebirth, as it were. Here, I think, is where Defoe, being his birth year, begins most channeling himself as he was when writing, whereas before, like in our short story Dandelion, he was more reflecting on his brash, youthful self. From here on in, Crusoe delves further and further into philosophical reverie. It makes the story a lot slower to read, but not less enjoyable. But you do have to pace yourself. Drinking tobacco steeped rum, which sounds just awful, Crusoe experiences a religious illumination and realizes that God has delivered him from his earliest sins of hubris and cruelty. I know this sounds overtly Christian and preachy, but while reading it, I found I interpreted it differently. Not really a sermon, but a character coming into a deeper philosophy, using religion as, a, as I believe it should be used as a representation of his own morality. While yes, here is when he begins thanking God for his deliverance, but also he begins seeing his reality in a more level, calm, plain and positive sense. He is suddenly on a path to contentment, 
no longer comparing his condition with that of his former life and civilization, but just unto itself, where he is well-fed, warm, has shelter, some luxuries, and daily purpose. In other words, he realizes it could be much worse and he's doing pretty alright, his religious awakening providing reason and peace to his reality. Now, I quite like how this non-organizational, philosophical form of religion doesn't involve persecuting anyone else, but just finding personal contentment and purpose. But I shouldn't delve too deep into this rabbit hole, else I get stuck and someone starts tickling my feet. After recovering from his illness, which you can tell was a dire episode, Crusoe makes a survey of the area and discovers he's on an island. Well done, buddy. Discovering this, he gets bolder with his exploratory circuits, hunting further and further out. He finds a pleasant valley abounding in grapes, where he builds a shady retreat, his holiday home as I mentioned, where around here also a further abundance of wildlife, and even turtles which he, unlike most sailors of the time, hunted only sparingly. Robinson begins to feel much more optimistic about being on the island, describing himself as its king now and then, and realizing he could live in this peaceful way for the rest of his life. Now, when I read through it, I never took much notice of him calling himself his king. Yes, it's an inherently very English and colonialist thing to do, but I didn't think it was overly harmful, especially because he was a king with no subjects. Here's where I draw the distinction against, say, The Guardian, where they claim Crusoe would have only been happy until he was a king with subjects to dominate, ergo, colonize. This occurs in the first quarter of the story, and in my copy, he is alone until page 155 of 235, during which time, he is perfectly happy existing alone on his island. Yes, he colonized it with himself by building shelters and the like, but he also has a great mind for sustainability, and isn't imposing his will, or even explicitly his culture, on anyone else for his own sense of security at this point, but I shall evidence this soon. And another thing, when it comes to calling himself king, it's usually an offhand comment, and yes, it's a character vice that he feels like he has to kind of be in this master role and dominate the world around him, even if there are no subjects. I don't think implicitly in how he interacts with the world on a more practical and spiritual level, it has any real kind of physical repercussions. Moving on, he trains a pet parrot, which is quite fun, named Paul, who learns to talk pretty well and says his name Robin. He also takes a goat as a pet and begins domesticating them both for company and for sustainable cattle, has a trusty dog for a while, Attempts to keep cats multiple times, but the little anarchists had to be all but shooed off or killed as they became pests, eating his food stocks. And he develops many fun skills that we'll need in the coming apocalypse, like basket weaving, bread making, and pottery. Honestly, I know I'd like to have my favourite book on a desert island with me, but I'd have to be cliche and take Robinson Crusoe instead, because it's such a perfectly imagined truth of a castaway story. It's pretty much a how-to guide of how to survive on a desert island. He takes the lumberjacking by cutting down an enormous cheddar tree. Or is it cedar tree? I have no idea. Cheddar tree sounds like a tree of cheese. Moving on. He takes the lumberjacking by cutting down an enormous cedar tree, with which he builds a huge canoe from its trunk. This part is quite funny. The whole time he's considering that he doesn't know how he'll get it into the water as he's building it. Then assumes he'll figure it out when the construction is done. He has no idea when it's finished, and it's just left there for the rest of the story as a constant reminder to look before you leap. This story is wonderful at that, naturally weaving philosophy and themes into the day-to-day -day life of the story. At the same time, it was hilariously foolish of him. Silly Robinson Crusoe. He's almost as weird as Rob in a way. Weird. After building a smaller boat, near the damn water this time, he rows around the island but nearly perishes when swept away by a powerful current. This episode traumatizes him so much he never tries to take to sea again. 
only paddling through the creeks or very close to the shore. Reaching said shore, he hears his parrot calling his name and is thankful for being saved once again. I found myself very proud of him at this point. He's done so well to look at the bright side of life and took to the Bible in such a positive and constructive way, not seeking to smite everyone, but to be generous and grateful in life. He spends several years in peace, at which point he really starts to run out of ink supplies and begins brushing with much broader strokes. However, at this point, you've seen him build all of the amazing resources that sustain him that you can just believe day-to-day life became simple and pleasant for him, with not much more to report on this score. But then, one day... At about year 23 of island living, walking about a merrily, Crusoe is shocked to discover a man's footprint on the beach. No, it's not his. And no, it's not Willem Dafoe's. He first assumes the footprint is the devil's. Give him a break. The only book he's had has been the Bible. He gathers his wits and eventually reckons it must belong to one of the cannibals said to live in the region. Understandably terrified, he arms himself, his forts, and remains on the lookout for cannibals scouring the island to find out where they are so that he may avoid them at all costs, or kill them. It didn't matter to him that the cannibals had definitely come and gone from the island several times while he was living there. Now that he knew about them, there they were in his mind every night, and there would be no comfort. Wasting no time, he builds an underground cellar in which to herd his goats at night and devises a way to cook underground, and furthermore, makes sure his habitats are impossible to discover unless one is led there. Then one evening, he hears gunshots. The next day he is able to see a ship wrecked on his and the next day he is able to see a ship wrecked on his coast, which is empty when he arrives on the scene to investigate. Crusoe once again thanks Providence for having saved him, assuming the sailors of the current vessel drowned like his long gone compatriots. In a grisly scene soon afterward, Crusoe discovers that a shore he has less explored has been strewn with human carnage, clearly the remains of a recent cannibal feast. I'm talking feet and picked clean torsos everywhere. It's a less than savoury barbecue despite the meat, let me tell you. He is alarmed and continues to be vigilant, and starts philosophising about the nature of cannibalism and those who practice it. Here, I fully expected full-blown 18th century racism and hate, but I was so pleasantly surprised. Indeed, this is the distinct moment where I truly liked Robinson Crusoe, rather than just sympathising with him. At first, he was furious and sickened by the prospect of cannibalism, arming himself to the teeth and like a little old Maddie looking for home invaders with a cricket bat, was ready to enact personal vigilante justice. But then he did something remarkable. He empathised with the other perspective. (gasps) It is possible, even in the 18th century. So please allow me a small quote in a sec. Here he was in a bit of a rant about how abominable and ungodly the act of cannibalism was. But then he grew weary of the fruitless excursion of hunting for them. His mind cooled and calmed, and he realised that From their point of view, their acts were not committed as a crime against their own consciences, or even their god. They think it no more crime to kill a captive taken in war than we do to kill an ox, nor to eat human flesh than we do to eat mutton. Then Robinson realises that it follows that if he were to kill them in cold blood, he would be committing the sin of murder by his own morals against them for a crime they did not perceive, and not having done any wrong to him. And so he would have killed them senselessly, thus making him the monster. He goes on, mentioning how the Spaniards slaughtered the Aztecs, who even though they had bloody and barbarous rites of human sacrifice, were still innocent people as to the Spaniards, and having done them no harm. And so the Spaniards committing their genocide was an utmost unjust abhorrence. He decides after all this, 
that the unknown tribes had done nothing to wrong him, and he therefore had no business to meddle with them until in the possible event he were attacked, in which case, of course, he would not hesitate to protect himself. Now that's a pretty damn early and intense example of accepting someone else's culture if you ask old Maddie, which, of course, you always, always should. I'm so clever. He even does it both in accordance to his own English morals and with his religion, citing that he has nothing to do with the sins or crimes that they were guilty of towards each other, as he had nothing to do with them, and that God was a national governor and knew how to make just retribution for national offences. Essentially, each to their own. And this was published in 1719. Most impressive. Much later on, Crusoe catches sight of 30 cannibals heading for shore with their victims. One of the victims is killed and they get to make in the first course. Another one, waiting to be slaughtered for the second course, suddenly breaks free and runs towards Crusoe's dwelling, not knowing the Englishman was waiting and watching. Nigh a year and a half ago before this, Robinson had had been contemplating some sort of escape, which needed the help of, say, a cannibal. Crusoe in the moment protects him, killing one of the two pursuers and injuring the other, whom the victim finally kills. With the tribe of 30 being alerted, Crusoe and his new ally fear that they will return in greater number to haunt them, and so, well armed, Crusoe defeats most of the cannibals on shore. The victim quickly conveys total loyalty to Crusoe and gratitude for his liberation. Crusoe names him Friday, to commemorate the day in which his life was saved, and takes him as his servant, and, in my opinion, his friend. It is lame that Crusoe teaches Friday to call him master before even yes and no, on the surface not entertaining the idea of equality or friendship from the get-go, but the way they interact outside of this annoying, semantic, but pervading detail can be admired as friendship, I think. Unlike, it seems, in a lot of critical essays against the story out there, which I do understand, I believe this problematic beginning of their dynamic does, like in any good story, grow. I was worried when reading that here was where it would get really, really dated, it is, at its essence, colonial. However, I was pleasantly pleased to find that Crusoe did as much work as he always did while teaching Friday to survive in the pleasant and non-cannibal way that he did. The whole way, the only thing Friday is ever truly ordered to not do by Robinson is eat the bodies of their fallen enemies, and is extremely excited to find that he thinks goat meat is much more pleasant to eat. Yes, Friday does become Crusoe's right-hand man and servant, but I truly enjoyed what I perceived to be a respectful budding friendship built on trust, respect, and eventual love from both parties. Finding Friday cheerful and intelligent, Crusoe teaches him some English words and some elementary Christian concepts, which Friday takes to quite cheerfully, likening the Christian God to the similar analogue from his own culture. Indeed, Robinson Crusoe eventually remarks that Friday is probably a more in-depth and better Christian than he is. Friday, in turn, explains that the cannibals are divided into distinct nations and that they only eat their enemies. Friday also informs Crusoe that the cannibals saved the men from the empty shipwreck Crusoe witnessed earlier, and that those men, the Spaniards, are living on the mainland in safety. They spend a good amount of years together, I think about three or four, each doing their fair share of work, enjoying each other's company, and learning from each other. Forsooth, Robinson definitely teaches more, but it never seems Friday is being robbed of his former culture as they often discuss his tribes and their ways too. I liken the Bible shared between them as one friend showing another friend a TV show, so that they had something to bond over, other than, you know, saving each other's lives. Eventually, Friday expresses a longing to return to his people, and Crusoe is upset by this at the prospect of losing Friday. So then Crusoe entertains the idea of making contact with the Spaniards, and Friday admits that he would rather die than lose Crusoe. See? Friendship. Really, really intense friendship. So the two build a boat, 
to visit the cannibals' land together, ready to communicate to both parties as one effective duo. However, before they have a chance to leave, they are surprised by the arrival of 21 cannibals in canoes, who hold three victims. Robinson, as per his much-discussed philosophy, was not going to engage, until he realised one of them is in European dress, thus breaking the whole each-to-their-own philosophy, because it was not in the Europeans' culture to be eaten. I guess, in Robin's mind, this would be breaking jurisdiction laws of God's justice. And so Friday and Crusoe, in a surprisingly thrillingly written action sequence, kill most of the cannibals and release the European, a Spaniard, give him a sword and he goes in Nigo Montoya and slays some more cannibals for good measure. Friday is overjoyed in a beautiful sequence to discover that another of the rescued victims is his own father. This is a beautiful reunion, and it's touching to see how Friday coddles his father back from his traumatic experience. The four men return to Crusoe's digs for food and rest, whereupon Crusoe prepares to welcome them into his community permanently. Each would learn to do their fair share was how I saw it, and as Off said when Crusoe hoarded the cash he found on shipwrecks, money meant nothing here. A colonial fairy tale guardian? Nay. I'm starting to think Daniel Defoe foreshadowed communism. They spent some time existing together, and soon there formulates a cunning plan to save the other Spaniards on the mainland. The Spaniard and Friday's father would go to the mainland, pick up the rest of the Spaniards, and material from the tribe, return, and together they'd build a worthwhile community. They all agree, and the Spaniard and Friday's father go off on their mission while Crusoe and Friday hold the fort. I like to think that as much as they enjoyed the new company, they missed their quality best friend time. Sometimes it's nice to just have Batman and Robin adventures, you know, rather than just the Justice League. Here's where it gets hectic, and I dare say rambunctious. Eight days later, the sight of an approaching English ship alarms Friday. At first glance, Crusoe is psyched because, hey, English ship equals salvation, one would assume. Here came another favourite bit which I dare quote, and an exemplar of another thing this story does so well. Because we're so in-depth into Robinson's psyche, because we're so in-depth into Robinson's psyche, Defoe is able to relate deeply human experiences so abstract that we never share them. Here is some fancy talk for when something in your gut doesn't feel right about something which on the surface seems absolutely fine and dandy. I quote, But yet, I had some secret doubts hung about me. I cannot tell from whence they came, bidding me keep upon my guard. Then he does some rationalization, which you learn to love. Let no man despise the secret hints and notices of danger which sometimes are given him when he may think there is no possibility of its being real, that such hints and notices are given us. I believe few that I've made any observations of things can deny, that they are certain discoveries of an invisible world, and a converse of spirits, we cannot doubt. And if the tendency of them seems to be to warn us of danger, why should we not suppose they are from some friendly agent, whether supreme or inferior and subordinate, is not the question, and that they are given for our good. Also, you get used to Defoe's manner of speaking, and it's actually quite a relatable read in terms of prose. But more or less, if it's too good to be true, it probably isn't. And that, much like in the alchemist's philosophy, if we listen to our instincts and the world around us, we will have a sense of friendly agents in an invisible world warning us of danger and making clear the signs towards our personal legends. Since childhood, I've called this instinct my lady luck, thanks to Frank Sinatra's covering of the Guys and Dolls number. And much like Billy Joel says, no matter how cruel or kind she may be, she is always a woman to me. Lady Luck was kind to Crusoe, warning him of this ship, for they remained undiscovered as it became clear that this ship had suffered mutiny and was now in the hands of dangerous, desperate pirates. 
Friday and Crusoe watch pretty damn pumped for action and heroics as 11 men take three captives on shore in a boat. Nine of the men explore the island, leaving two to guard the captives. Friday and Crusoe leap into the fray, overpower these men and release the captives, one of whom is the captain of the ship, which have been taken in a mutiny indeed. They really are Batman and Robin. Shouting to the remaining mutineers from different points, Friday and Crusoe confuse and tire the men by making them run from place to place in some cunning and dynamic guerrilla warfare, I guess. Eventually, they confront the mutineers, telling them that all may escape with their lives except the ringleader, a fate heavily negotiated and reasoned with the freed captain, who was pretty reasonable considering his tribulations. The men wisely surrender. Crusoe and the captain pretend that the island is an imperial territory and that the governor has spared their lives in order to send them all to England to face justice, and they keep five men as hostages. Then Crusoe sends the other men out to seize the ship. When the ship is brought in, Crusoe nearly faints. For sudden joys, like griefs, confound us at first. The captain brings clothes, rum, and food to Crusoe's digs. Enjoy what I found to be a touching last night on the island for our castaway and his pal Friday. Those mutineers that proved unforgivable are shown mercy by being allowed to stay on the Robinson Crusoe island on the condition that they care for the land as he did, which he explains to them, and that when the Spaniards return that they work with the Spaniards and explain that Crusoe will return for them when he can. On the 19th of December... 1686, Crusoe and Friday board the ship to sail for England. There, Crusoe finds his family is all deceased, save for two sisters. His widow friend has kept Crusoe's money safe, and after travelling to Lisbon, Crusoe learns from the Portuguese captain who saved him from slavery all those years ago, had freed Zuri, and that his plantations in Brazil have been highly profitable. Here, the meticulous nature of Defoe's writing, however truthfully imagined, becomes a bit laborious as the adventure is done, and this is more or less just Robinson liquidating assets. He arranges to sell his Brazilian lands and kind of glosses over the profitable slave labour of said lands, sadly, and is more than understandably wary of further sea travel. And so Crusoe attempts to return to England by land, over snowy mountains through dark forests filled with desperately hungry wolves. There follows a hectic sequence in which they ride through the Valley of Death in northern Spain, at one point firing against a horde of a hundred wolves and setting a falling tree being used as a barricade alight while wolves are leaping upon it to eat them. There's also this weird and ultimately super sad sequence in which Friday, seeking to get a laugh from his buddy, disturbs a bear who showed none of them any ill will, deliberately taunts it with a prolonged chase up a tree, and then, after making the poor bear chase him, climb up a tree, nearly fall off a branch, and then warily climb down, shoots it in the head leaving it behind without even taking the meat or the pelt. I nearly cried here, actually. I was deeply disappointed in Friday and Crusoe, but wonders if this was the cruel kind of comedy of the early 18th century, and if Defoe added this for a bit of light reprieve to jolly up the ending of what has been quite a dark and trialing story. What's sadder still about this, though, is that Robinson, and therefore Defoe, is acutely aware that bears are noble and that they don't bother humans if humans don't bother them. So even at the time this was written, this is obviously a profoundly wasteful scene and blemish on the characters. At the same time, we've come a long way with Robinson and Friday, and I know on a philosophical and integrity level that I like the cut of their jibs, so I chose to attribute this tragedy more a misstep of Defoe than to the characters themselves, as it seemed totally out of place. Like adding forced Joss Whedon-esque quips to every post-Whedon action film. Shut. Up. Everybody. Finally arriving back in England, Crusoe receives word that the sale of his plantations has been completed and that he has made a considerable fortune. So I guess he's out of the slave game then. So little victories, everybody. 
Also, Friday is still his best friend, but it is acknowledged that in Western society, it is safer for him to travel as a servant. For my own little headcanon, I like to assume that their status quo would be much like it was on the island, in which they look after each other and more or less equal. After donating a portion to the widow and his sisters, and paying off everyone who looked after his assets and stayed true to their word while he was thought dead, Crusoe is restless and considers returning to Brazil, but he is dissuaded by the thought that he would have to become a Catholic. Even though I know he's technically Protestant, I like to think that he found his own sense of religion, having self-taught and discovered his divine sense through experience outside of any organization. He marries for a spell, in Defoe's prudish style, this is a brief side note, and then his wife is dead in the same sentence. And finally, Crusoe departs for the East Indies as a trader in 1694, a hope of something nice like silk. He revisits his island, finding that the Spaniards are governing it well, and the criminals that were left behind, once they settled down a little bit, have found contentment and proactive lives, and henceforth the uninhabited island became a prosperous colony. Indeed, I do declare, a prosperous communist colony. So I guess, technically, due to that ultimate ending, this is a colonialist tale. But it isn't imperialist, and it isn't malevolently English in that it's imposing its will upon other cultures. As a story, I think it's a unique journey of character and philosophy, and one of the ultimate tales of a character's in-depth evolution within. When he left the island, I was emotional. I know I hadn't been there for 28 years, but I had experienced those years with him, with all the glorious, silly, and tragic days therein. So I still don't see it as any kind of pernicious colonialist fairy tale. Indeed, notwithstanding the issues I've pointed out with it, I can't help but see it as an essential triumph of a classic, one that, unlike The Guardian, definitely deserves to endear again and again. Ah, here you are, Rob. Just finished telling the rollicking tale of Robinson Crusoe. Ever heard of it? Well, of course you haven't. You're too busy bragging about all of your 28 years surviving on this piss island. When it comes to choosing a meat, I've decided that the plot being the what, it only made sense to pick out the what of the story to represent it. Something that immediately fits the iconography of the story at hand while the rest of the ingredients take care of the thematics and the syntax. So let's get pedantic with the semantics, I think. Upon our club sandwich of honey oat and sourdough, we shall put goat meat to represent Crusoe's own main source of meat. Good thing he didn't turn to cannibalism. And as for cheese? Well, like I said, I feel like we should knock this right out of here right now too, with our titular hero, Robinson Crusoe. He's no flashy, swashbuckling hero. No, he's much like Defoe. You're a run-of-the-mill college graduate who felt a need to break loose from stifling comfort and seek adventure. Who can blame him? There's a reason he's worthy of being the titular character of a 300-year-old novel. He has so many admirable qualities. First and foremost, his perseverance. What I liked most is how we got to see him develop skills. He's not Batman. He doesn't know how to do a lot of things. But he has the can-do attitude enough to figure it out. Good man. Thigh slap. But no one's perfect. As we saw through this tale quite briefly, when it came to up and leaving his family, Crusoe was quite cold. His tendency to want to arbitrarily subject people like the Spaniard and Friday is irksome and definitely objectionable, but it's never a practical issue, really. And though he is generous to those he feels indebted to, he doesn't seem to truly care about human connections, say, the widow, the Portuguese captain, or his sisters. I mean, it says a lot about Crusoe in his account when he tells that he has gotten married and his wife has died in the same sentence. All this with the exception of Friday, who, despite the servant-master subjugation, Robertson does say he loves and shows many a time that he does truly appreciate him. What I love about his relationship with Friday, and what I think Crusoe loves too, is that Friday's charisma, exuberance, and emotional directness exposes, yet also completes, 
the social virtues that Robinson's personality lacks. Whereas Friday leaps with joy and weeps giddy tears upon finding his father, not once does Robinson think about his family who he left and the happiness of seeing them again. But that all being said, all of those vices are social, and perhaps Daniel Defoe wanted to give us a socially awkward, neurotic, flawed protagonist. Someone real. Meanwhile, many of his private aspects are very admirable, being resourceful, clever, rational, willing to be vulnerable enough to admit fear or panic, humble, solitarily courageous, and perseverant. He is an ordinary, sensible man the whole way, never an exceptional hero, which is why his tale is so legendary. So it is for this reason that I've chosen to represent Robinson Crusoe on the Robinson Crusoe Club Sandwich as cold Swiss cheese, a mild flavour for a mild-mannered guy on an exceptional sandwich, a perseverant and reliable cheese, ever admirable and endearing, with some holes to represent the pitfalls in his personality. After all, he's only human. Quick side note, I just had a radical idea. What if, now bear with me, considering socially awkward, neurotic, flawed protagonist, what if Woody Allen played Robinson Crusoe? I mean, he's kind of a controversial figure, much like Robinson Crusoe and Daniel Defoe, so he'd fit right in to some weird, weirdly playing straight adaptation of Robinson Crusoe. Boy, it would just be a weird kind of awful, like slurping expired aioli. Moving on, I would say I would love to analyze Friday more, but I fear the time is nigh to finally make this sandwich. What I will say is that though it's a bummer of history that the likely first non-white character to be portrayed in a realistic, individualized, and humane light is subjugated by the white protagonist, he still holds his own as a worthwhile and contributing factor in the story, and as a friend to Crusoe. I understand the cultural importance and why essays have been written on Friday's perspective of the story, like in the movie Man Friday with Peter O'Toole and Richard Roundtree, where Robinson Crusoe is a colonialist idiot and Richard Roundtree's Friday and his tribe are much more sane and it becomes more of an antagonist and protagonist relationship with Crusoe as the antagonist. But like The Guardian, I think because the story and these characters are so iconic, they can be seen through so many lenses and distortions to convey so many different messages and themes for intellectual pursuit, which is grand. But the characters themselves, I think, stand the test of time because at the bottom line, It's a tale of a great friendship. The mere fact that an Englishman confesses more love for an illiterate Caribbean ex-cannibal than for his own family suggests the appeal of Friday's personality, especially when considering the time of writing. Still hate that bear scene, though. And with that, Kiotis, I shall catch up with you after a short break. It seems Rob returned, dropped the meat and cheese off with a lot of attitude that I did not ask for, and went out armed with two loaded musket rifles. I definitely told him there's an M16 wielding bear out there. So I guess I gotta go save him. Wait a minute. Am I a colonialist narrative? Oh no. Play the damn music. Here we are, Kiotis, at the end of our own Robinson Crusoe Club Sandwich Island adventure. I know, it seems like we've been trapped here for 28 years too. Here's a quick update of old Maddie and his new best friend Rob. As I mentioned, he went out armed with muskets and flintlocks, so I followed him, wielding my club, Sandwich, ready to come to his aid. But then I found he was in battle with a gang of pirates that had come to the island. Well, I didn't waste a second, and leapt upon the only noble and sane thing to do. I immediately joined the pirates. They had the numbers, and the ship. 
I rallied the buccaneers to my gallant cry and charged upon my eternal enemy and never once friend Rob, only to find he had accrued a group of dishonorable traitors to our glorious mutiny. But I'm the hero of this audible picture, and I decided that me being a master swordsman is canon. Aha, said I, thou shiny-shoed ninny-sucklers. But then, out of the bushes, came a certain unicycling bear, who I cannot bear to name, and cutting one of its pathetic, tiny little hands, shook hands with Rob, who did the same. And so it became clear that that damn Jim Posby was fulfilling a blood marker. I can think of nothing more appropriate or more frustrating to end this episode with an episode of Debt and Defoe than a blood marker. One by one, Poresby fired upon us, and when the barrel turned to me, I could claim to be one of the few people in human history to have seen a bear wink. But then again, a bear cannot count. Click! Fumbling to reload, Rob decided in that last moment to take me and those of us mutineers who survived prisoner. Well, balls. We were meticulously defeated. He then narrated for way too long our condition, which was bloody plain to see, and those that survived the centurial monologue were allowed to remain on the island while he returned to England, abandoned again. I don't deserve this, but I'm sure there's a lesson to learn from all this. Not for me, of course, for I am all-knowing, but I mean from Robinson Crusoe, for we need to add the sauce and the final touches to our Robinson Crusoe sandwich. This is not a colonialist fairy tale in my opinion. It's a tale of human perseverance in both a philosophical and physical lens. I won't try to argue it's a communist parable, but I will say that it's such an archetypal story, it can be used to convey so many different things with just a minor shift of the idea, as any icon can be changed. For example, Star Wars from a Stormtrooper's perspective can be a message about religious radicalism when Jedi blow up the Death Star. The main themes of Robinson Crusoe, as I bloody hope is clear from all this jibber-jabber, are the importance of self-awareness, in essence, keeping your head no matter the direness of the situation and a willingness to constantly reflect on who you are and who you want to be, the ambivalence of mastery, and that no one starts as a master at anything, and that you may feel a hopeless desolate on a deserted beach, but with just practice and a willingness to master your situation, that beach may become a beach of gold, and finally, the necessity of repentance, obviously more explicitly referring to literal repentance to God and all that jazz, but I think in a modern context, it can be read more as the importance of learning from your mistakes and recognizing when you were in the wrong, thus becoming a better person. Solid themes, all tying into introspection to gain full self-awareness and thus ability, which is, of course, the purpose of any castaway story, the ultimate physicalized tale of introspection. So what be the source of this source of the tale? Why, it is obvious, is it not? Okay, I have no idea. Sources are not my strong suit. This might have to be revised, but I dare declare a mushroom source. Why? Well, mushrooms are full of protein, so they're sturdy and reliable, full of masterful gumption. They're fungi, so they're perseverant and learn from mistakes, probably, and they are constantly growing. Who knows? Maybe a mushroom will become self-aware. So before it does, put it in a creamy sauce and onto our Robinson Crusoe Club sandwich. Some added ingredients I would suggest to really capture the castaway setting would be some coconut shavings, scrumptious corn to acknowledge the miraculous crops that saved his life, a side of grapes in tribute to Crusoe's favourite fruit on the island, some chilli powder so you can learn from some mistakes, some spinach and coriander to capture his jungle, and voila! Put all that on a club sandwich of honey oat bread, sourdough, goat meat with crisp cold Swiss cheese, lathered in nice creamy mushroom sauce. Mmm. Behold my quiotes. 
the Robinson Crusoe sandwich. And as I eat this sandwich filled with perseverance and self-awareness, I watch Rob's ship disappear beyond the horizon, lost for reason as to what would possess him to turn on me, his best friend, betrayed and alone, save for the trio of fellow spared mutineers, but mostly alone. I reflect on the very surprising incidents that brought me hither, and frankly, am excited to give a farther account of my adventures hereafter, my Kyotis. I thank you for staying behind on this island with me, and I swear tis a land ripe for adventure, and non-colonial picking. What's that, fellow mutineer? Oh, it seems Rob was Robinson Crusoe himself. Well, that raises a lot of questions about our timeline, but that's an adventure for another day. Farewell, my Kyotis. Until next time, look for my usp in a bottle. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.